1: I gotta warn you, I'm I'm jumping right into the deep end of the pool today. So brace yourself. If, if this is your first time checking out the show, I I guess I should probably apologize because <laughs> I'm going right for the meat. There will be no app no appetizers. There's gonna be no salad, no sorbet to cleanse your palate between courses. We're just gonna jump right in. Uh, I am glad you're listening though, and and let me just uh, start by saying you're gonna hear information here. You probably won't hear. In other corners, and it's not because I have all the answers, it's not because I've cornered the market on truth, but I am taking the most honest, straightforward look at the world that I possibly can, and trying to present this information in such a way that it leaves you feeling empowered, and more importantly, with a conviction that it is essential to think for yourself and question everything that you're reading, seeing, hearing, including the information that I'm sharing with you. So I've been sitting back for the last few days. I watched the president's visit to, uh, to Ukraine and thought, oh boy, you know, it's, I, I don't know what the, what the deal is there as far as, you know, is he just making appearances? Is he there to pick up Hunter's paycheck? What is it? But I know that uh, right now, things are, are very, very fragile in terms of uh, peace on a geopolitical level. In fact, I think it's pretty safe to say peace is off the table right now. And uh, we've, we've been fed this, this incredible narrative about how, well, you know, Russia just with no reason at all, no provocation, suddenly a year ago they just invaded out of the blue and uh, nobody could figure out why other than Putin is the devil and, you know, he's literally Hitler. And, and it's been interesting to watch over the last year all that misinformation. Now, I understand, during times of war, misinformation is the rule rather than the exception. But if you want some very clear analysis of what is at stake with the U.S. intervention in Ukraine. i got to recommend Jeff Thomas's essay, which was published today on LewRockwell.com. This is not what you're hearing from the narrative managers, but factually I believe he is absolutely right. So for for your consideration, I'm going to offer a counterpoint here from Jeff Thomas that will fill in some of the gaps that you're not getting through legacy media sources. Jeff writes that in 2014, the U.S. funded a coup d'etat in Ukraine. Now this is pretty common knowledge just so you know he's not pulling this out of thin air. Ejecting the democratically elected president and installing an American puppet. The new regime then set about attacking the republics of Donetsk and Luhansk which were predominantly Russian. Russia did not intervene even though the US was messing in Russia's backyard. It did however try to draw some uh, draw some red lines, rather, warning the Ukrainian government in Kiev that if it tried to take Crimea, join NATO, or become a nuclear state, Russia would invade. This is all a matter of record, okay? It's not a matter of, well, they were just looking for an excuse. They gave very fair and clear warnings. In February of 2022, Ukrainian puppet President Zelensky announced at the Munich Security Conference that Ukraine would nuclear. That was the trigger that caused Russia to invade Ukraine days later. The U.S. was filled with outrage and sought to involve NATO in retaliation. The American media was filled with angry reports of unprovoked invasion, stating Russia's goal was to seize all of Europe. Well, since that time, the U.S. media have maintained a constant barrage of propaganda regarding the war. And the theme is always the same. Well, the Russians are a murderous army, killing civilians, bombing hospitals and schools. But they're also incompetent, poorly led, their troops riddled with deserters, losing battle after battle, and experiencing far more casualties than the Ukrainians. Yet somehow, even though the Russians are claimed every day on the news to be losing badly, somehow, they've continued to to advance. Kiev has been continually desperate for more from, from NATO in order to survive, and the U.S. and other countries never seem to be offering enough materiel, advisors, and funding for Ukraine to win. Well, Jeff Thomas says eventually rumors began to leak out of Ukraine. Their casualties are eight to Russia's one. The seasoned Ukrainian troops have been decimated. Kiev is barely surviving with green green conscripts, outside contractors and depleting resources. Meanwhile, Russia has built up a force of over 500,000 fresh troops that are well-trained and well-armed with substantial supply lines. A winter campaign is underway that's expected to make short work of the collapsing Ukrainian defense. Now, the U.S. has done all it can to appeal to the 38 nation NATO. I'm sorry, the 30 nation NATO. But the NATO countries, for the most part, are staying as far away from the fight as possible, not even wanting to provide materiel. At the beginning of the war, Joe Biden stated, The idea that we're going to send in offensive equipment and have planes and tanks and trains going in with American pilots and American crews, just understand, that's called World War III. He said the quiet part out loud. Yet in January of 2023, he announced that the U.S. and Germany would send 45 tanks to Ukraine. It might as well be sending 45 schoolchildren with pop guns as they'd last nearly as long on the field of a battle as 45 tanks. Not only is the U.S. running out of options, but the American people are beginning to realize that they've been lied to. And while inflation is raging in the U.S., the U.S. government is pouring billions into Ukraine. All is not well on the home front. Now U.S. leaders have begun to suggest that a limited nuclear war might be the one remaining option. Now, this suggests that if the U.S. were to fire a few nuclear missiles, it would scare Russia into throwing in the towel. The trouble is, Russia has the largest number and most advanced nuclear weapons on the planet. The chances of it not retaliating to limited nukes are nil. Instead, they're likely to unleash the full force of their nuclear armaments. And just for for point of record, within the last couple of days, Putin has removed Russia from the uh, the last remaining uh, nuclear strategic arms uh, treaty. Just saying. Now, Jeff Thomas says the media has said that the present situation is unprecedented. But in fact, this has happened before. <clears throat> he reminds us in 1962, it was the Soviets who had the temerity to move into America's backyard, sending missiles to Cuba. And the U.S. was as justifiably outraged then as Russia is now. So at that time, President Kennedy called the Joint Chiefs together to advise him. Today, that meeting has been largely forgotten, but it's important to recall that the Joint Chiefs unanimously said, in essence, press the button immediately. Don't wait another day. Now, Mr. Kennedy was alone in the hope that a nuclear Armageddon could be avoided. With no other option open to him, he called Soviet leader Nikita Khrushchev and asked him to call back the ships that carried the missiles. Mr. Khrushchev advised him that his own generals were telling him, too, to push the button immediately. Well, the two men ignored their respective generals and worked out an agreement in which the two sides would de-escalate. Armageddon was avoided by two sane men. But here we are again, possibly on the brink of Armageddon. All that's required is for one side to push the button. The missile systems of the other would then respond. But the question is, would anyone actually push The button. Well, Mr. Putin, formidable as he is, is a pragmatic man and may well respond as well or better than Mr. Khrushchev. But the man in the White House is no John Kennedy. He's a cardboard cutout of a leader. The real decisions in Washington are being made by the deep state and it's running out of options. Russia holds virtually all the cards. Its economy is expanding. The U.S. sanctions have caused two-thirds of the world to seek new treaties with Russia and China. The new agreement between China and Saudi Arabia will effectively end the petrodollar. And the U.S. is not only broke, but in debt beyond the ability to even pay the interest. Now, the last thing the deep state wants is a loss of face, leading to a loss of power. And their last hope may well be to bluff that they will go nuclear. So if this were to happen, Jeff Thomas asks, how would it play out? At least based on past performance. The most likely scenario would be that the U.S. would fire a low yield, maybe 0.3 kiloton B-61 missile at, say, Kiev. And then claim that it was a Russian missile and then call on all of NATO to join the fight against Russia. Now, the danger of this is that the pre-programmed missile systems in both the U.S. and Russia would take over, carpeting the U.S., Europe, and Western Russia with nukes. The volleys would be brief, lasting only a few hours, but their total volume would be sufficient enough to obliterate those countries, as seen in the 2017 Princeton nuclear simulation video, which he includes in the article. I'm going to tap the brakes here, partly because we have another break coming up, but partly because... I just want to want to just ask you to pause and think about this for a moment. My goal here is not to scare you. Okay, I'm really not trying to, to paint the picture of it's hopeless. We're all going to be incinerated in a nuclear fireball. More than that, I'm trying to get you to consider that we have psychopathic people at the helm right now. The leaders in our political classes, and this is throughout the world. It's not just the U.S. They are willing to risk all of it, meaning us, in order to to gain whatever it is they think they're going to gain. That's pretty formidable. We'll come back with more of Jeff Thomas's commentary just the other side of these messages. This is
0: The Brian
1: Hyde Show.
0: This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, I want to apologize. If you're a first time listener, you're probably like, Holy crap. What have I clicked on? What have I tuned into? <laughs> well, I'm sorry. Today just was an especially uh, strong dose of painful truth. But I'm sharing with you some analysis from Jeff Thomas, writing for internationalman.com. And it's uh, the question would they really go nuclear? Would the U.S. and Russia really go nuclear? Because right now we are right up on the brink. I have heard many credible people say that the risk is as high or higher than it's ever been. And that's pretty crazy for, for a kid who grew up, you know, came of age in the 80s. It's like, wow, you know, that, that's, a very hard, uh, that's a very hard mindset to break free of when we lived under the, the prospect of, you know, or mutual assured destruction. But here we are. And it's looking more and more like the U.S., which, by the way, it's not Joe Biden running the show. You should probably realize that as you watch him try to figure out which way is up every time he's in front of the cameras. But whoever's pulling his strings, I think, has, has no sense of right and wrong, of what is moral and what is immoral. And they're more than willing to push everything right to the brink in order to get their way. So Jeff Thomas was talking about the uh, 2017 Princeton nuclear simulation. It's, it's a video you can check out for yourself. It's, it's in the article, which is linked in my show notes at the thebrianheidshow.com. Now, in this scenario, the casualties of a nuclear exchange between the U.S. and Russia would be about 91.5 million. Deaths from fallout would also significantly increase this number, as fallout would cover much of the northern hemisphere moved by trade winds and ocean currents. As the southern hemisphere has a separate weather system and virtually all targets would be in the north, the southern hemisphere would probably fare better than the north. But beyond this damage, there's still the possibility of a nuclear winter that would ensue lasting months, maybe even years. Now, Jeff Thomas says, in reading the above, the natural reaction for each of us as sane people would be to say, that can't possibly happen. Nobody would be that crazy. Yet, as is so often the case, Many of the world's political and military leaders are certifiably sociopathic. And as history shows, when sociopath, sociopaths vie for power, reason tends to go out the window. So, in looking back to 1962, once again, it's instructive to note that when Fidel Castro was advised by, by Mr. Khrushchev that de escalation had been agreed upon, he was furious. He's reported to have advised Mr. Khrushchev that he would have preferred Armageddon for his country rather than to have been left out of the negotiations. That's the nature of sociopaths. And it should be emphasized, says Jeff Thomas, that nuclear war is by no means a certainty, but we are dangerously close. Now, I'll admit, I spend less time worrying about nuclear war. You know, in the grand scheme of things, that is not something that I have control over. But there is a worry that sometimes pops up in the back of my mind because I have adult children. And I have children who are coming of age and and particularly I have high school age children. And what worries me is not so much the nuclear exchange possibility, but the possibility that uh, the political class is going to get us into some kind of protracted war or intervention in Ukraine it's it's so frustrating to watch them do this, knowing full well that they're going to be sitting somewhere safely sipping lemonade while they they call upon our sons and daughters because after all we are a world of equity now, to go fight and die for a cabal of jackals. So I'm going to share with you a commentary from Steve Deese. He was a guest on on Tim Cast podcast uh, the other day, and and it's all about. Uh, Drawing a clear line on sending our kids to die for a needless conflict, Steve DeSimone has no words on this, and I agree entirely with what he's saying. I wanted you to hear what he has to say just to realize what the stakes are. Weird
2: it, with Ukraine is my last nerve, and and this is hard for me to say, as a kid who's a child of the of the '80s who grew up in the We're America bitch '80s who wore Alex Pinkerton monogrammed sweater vests, okay, and and got up in the middle of the night to cheer Reagan bombing Gaddafi back to the Neolithic period. This is hard for me to say, okay? You're taking my, my high school age son to fight and die in Ukraine, literally over my dead body. I'm never allowing that. I'm never letting you take him to die for your Habsburg dynasty, World War One, needless 20 million pile of deaths replay over your elites pissing contest. Not happening. I don't care what the threat is. I don't care what the penalty is. And if you think you're drafting my daughters, get the camps ready because you're going to need them. Never happening. This is a this is this is an example. Of history doesn't just repeat, it rhymes. This is a ha- These are but these are a bunch of elites. A, a little cabal that are all throw Putin all of them all in together this is a Habsburg dynasty pissing contest over a strip of land most people can't find don't care about has no strategic value to anybody within the sound of my voice unless they're involved in, in, in investing money with Hunter Biden this thing is such a crock it's so fake it's so phony it's one of the most simplistic disgusting stories I've ever seen it's one of the most cynical stories I've ever seen it's wag the dog but dumber and and and, and this This, to me, is the final straw of just absolute civil disobedience. We're never fighting your damn war. Hell no. Wow.
1: Wow. Wow. I think he's right. And look, I understand. For some people, this is going to really offend their sense of patriotism and duty. Brian, don't you love America? I absolutely do. And I have raised my kids to love this country and the principles that make America, America including the, the, the great gift of liberty, which I believe is the basis on which this nation was founded in the first place, the promise on which it was founded. Look, I'm not going to mince words here. I think there are some things that are worth dying for. And I believe liberty is one of those things. There are things that are worth defending to the point where you are willing to shed blood or have your own blood shed because they matter that much. But what's going on in Ukraine, tragic as it may be, is not the product of, you know, someone coming here and trying to deprive me of my liberty. It's the product of evil people at many different levels, vying for power over others, and just a whole lot of innocent people caught in the middle and being crushed and suffering, you know, in in ways we can't even begin to imagine. But I'm with Steve Deese. I'll be damned if I'd let my kids be drafted and taken off to fight for that. They have no duty to defend those in authority who have betrayed us at every single turn. I don't care how unpatriotic that sounds. I'm just going to put it out there. If you're, if you're going to die for the cause of liberty, you're probably more likely to do so here on American soil, defending your liberty from the people who would like to send our kids across the world to fight in a useless war that never had to happen. That started because of interventionism and started because of other people's lust for power and lust for dominion. I wouldn't ask other people to sacrifice their children for, for that kind of a cabal of evil. And I'm certainly not going to allow it to be done with my own. Now there is the option. I do have, I do have adult kids. Maybe some of them would be so persuaded they would say, well, you know, I'm willing to step up and, and do this because I believe in it. That is their conscience. And if that is your conscience, if, they, if your conscience says, well, we need to get in there. And I get a lot of people have been raised that Russia is evil. Everything about Russia is evil. And while I don't believe that, uh, that Putin is one of the good guys, out of all the world's uh, leaders, out of all the bad guys who find themselves in positions of high authority... I do have to question is if he really is as evil to the depth as it appears the, the people in charge of my own country are. It's not a matter of my country, right or wrong. It's a matter of I want my country to be right. But there are some places where I absolutely cannot stand with its leaders. And where they depart from principle, they do not merit my support. I don't know how you feel about it, but I put my cards on the table, and I'm willing to stand by those statements. They want to fight the war? Go fight it themselves. Better yet, send their own kids. Let's see how committed they really are. It's easy to spend other people's money. It's easy to send other people's kids to die for your hopeless cause.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. All right. I've taken my meds. I put a cool towel on my forehead. <laughs> and I'm calming down now. I'm, I'm really... I'm concerned, not so much for myself, but I'm concerned for those who would try to claim my kids and your kids as cannon fodder for whatever misguided attempt they have to enforce politics by other means. So, now that I've got that out of my system, let's turn to a few other things that I think are also worthwhile. Uh, One thing I wanted to share with you, this was a great essay from Annie Holmquist. If you talk to someone who's been away from America for a few years, they can give you a sense of just how greatly trans activism, transgender activism has exploded In the last few years. And Annie Holmquist has a very thoughtful article on the real issues behind the symptom of transgenderism. Her point is that the quest for gender transitions often covers up the deeper mental, emotional, and physical problems. And she starts with a story of a friend. She says, Back around 2017, a friend of mine came home after being on the mission field in Africa for a few years. And what really shocked her was the rise of transgenderism in America during that brief period. Now, that was six years ago that her friend came home. Think of how much it's changed since then. And I'll just tell you from, from a point of personal experience, I served a mission for my church. It was only two years. But during that two years, I was limited, very limited, in terms of how much of popular culture, television, and so forth, I was able to, to access. And even though my mission was here in the United States, when I came home and I flipped on the television it was very noticeable, you know, how far the envelope was being expanded as far as, hey, look what we can get away with. So I can only imagine someone being out of country and away from, you know, what's been going on here, uh, coming back and going, what on earth has happened? Annie Holmquist says it's undeniable that transgenderism has accelerated at an alarming rate in the last few years. But she says the interesting thing is that some within the LGBTQ movement are recognizing its rapid spread and are now expressing alarm rather than delight. One of these individuals is Jamie Reed, a queer woman who descri- describes her political leanings as "left of Bernie Sanders." Reid recently told her experience in an ar- article for the Free Press, claiming, "I thought I was saving trans kids. Now I'm blowing the whistle." By the way, this is a marvelous article. Well worth your time to read. Starting in 2018, Reed worked as a case manager in the transgender center of a children's hospital. As more and more children came through the doors, Reed grew concerned that the growth was becoming a fad, particularly when whole groups of teens would sweep in the door claiming they all wanted to transition. She pointed out especially this was common to see groups of girls all from the same high school. And she calls it social contagion, which I think is is a good descriptor. Annie Holmquist says the push to transition young people who clearly had other mental or health issues, including depression, obesity, anxiety, and autism, was especially concerning to Reed, as were the cases where the real problem was clearly past trauma. The trend to go around parents' wishes was also troubling, as was the lack of disclosure about the likely medications, such as those for diabetes and blood pressure, that the cooperative parents were subjecting their gender-confused children to. Finally, Reed had, had enough she says I left the clinic in November of last year because I could no longer participate in what was happening there by the time I departed I was certain that the way the American medical system is treating these patients is the opposite of the promise we make to do no harm instead we are permanently harming the vulnerable patients in our care end quote now Annie Holmquist says Reid's story is interesting in that it underscores a growing realization that she's had lately. Namely, that the increase in transgenderism and other LGBTQ ideologies is often just the outgrowth of past abuse and negative experiences left undealt with. She says, I came to realize this while reading Laura Perry's book, Transgender to Transformed. Perry was raised in a Christian home but always had difficulty connecting with her mother due to personality differences, which in turn led to great insecurity. When she was only eight, a friend's brother violated her creating an appetite for sexual activity that Perry sought to feed during her teen years with all types of illicit behaviors, accompanied by the occult and plenty of rebellion. Due to the many times she felt used by men, Perry wished the roles could be reversed and that she could be male herself. She thought that was possible when she discovered the concept of transgenderism in 2007, beginning the process of transitioning from Lara to Jake. During the required counseling before her transition, Perry's therapist looked up at her in surprise, saying, Wow, you really have issues with your mom. Perry angrily lashed out, but in retrospect acknowledges, quote, What is most sad to me about this encounter is that I think the therapist knew that the issues with my mom were causing a lot of my desire to be a boy. That certainly wasn't the entire problem, but I think that's where it had started very early in childhood. In fact, I found out several years later when I needed a certified letter from the therapist that my gender dysphoria wouldn't impede my job performance, that she'd never diagnose, actually diagnosed me officially. She had given me a letter to start hormone therapy to transition simply because I wanted it. I had not been medically diagnosed as needing it. End quote. Now, Perry's story of seeking gender transition lines up with the one Reed saw unfolding in the gender clinic where she worked. So often the desire to transition to the opposite sex was merely a symptom of a deeper problem, great hurt, or serious health issues, or a desire for acceptance. Yet in today's politically correct society, the trained professionals can't seem to see or are too scared to speak out about the real issue. Now Perry's story ends happily. She turned back to God and he convicted her that she was that she needed to begin living as a woman again. And though the transition was emotionally painful, Perry is now a beautiful and joyful woman, recently married and publicly speaking about her difficult past. But how many other individuals are following the fad of transgenderism in order to cover up the real physical, mental, and emotional problems? Jamie Reed's experience working at the gender clinic suggests the number is rapidly expanding. That demonstrates that we as adults must have courage to start dealing with the root of these problems rather than treating the symptoms, dealing with the sex, the porn, the broken families, the lack of God in the lives of these troubled young souls who are looking for solutions in all the wrong places. That's pretty straightforward, but I think she's right. And, you know, I, again, I'm going to hearken back to, um, you know, the, the Matt Walsh approach is, well, you you call them out, you ridicule them, you shame them into submission. And there may be times where that is is necessary. I'll give you an example of what, what I think I saw shame being used to good effect. And it was a couple of years ago. I talked about this on the program here. Um, it was a, a pastor who showed up at a library in California and uh, and was there for Drag Queen Story Hour. And, of course, you know, there were tons of parents there. Well, tons. There was a number of parents there with very, very small children. We're talking toddlers in hand. And the pastor sat quietly through the whole presentation of Drag Queen Story Hour. And at the end of the presentation, the, the drag queen who was reading said, are there any questions from, you know, from anybody? And the pastor raised his hand and he said, yeah, I have a question. What are you going to do when Jesus Christ judges you for what you are doing to these children? Okay, that's some pretty strong, that's industrial strength shame that was brought out. And the look of horror on the faces of the parents and the performers and, you know, the the people, the people who were hosting the event, I mean, they were too stunned to talk at first. You could just see them all kind (gasps) of, and then they were angry shrieking, get out, get out, Ah, you know, screaming and trying to chase this pastor out. Out came the phones. We're going to film him. We got to get this on film. He's he's here not believing the same thing as us. Wow! They were freaking out. And he kept very calmly asking, what are you going to do? Jesus said it would be better that you have a millstone hanged around your neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea than you offend these little ones. I mean, look, he was doing his pastorly duty by calling this out. Okay, I think that was probably an appropriate use of shame and an appropriate use of calling out because there were people in the act of subjecting their children to deviancy in the name of fun. They were warping their kids' minds. Now, Matt Walsh is very well-spoken. I think his, his movie... What is a woman may be one of the best things that I have seen in recent memory in helping to, to, to really illustrate the, the mental disconnect from reality used by so many on the left who are promoting all this gender ideology. But I also believe that there comes a point where it can be gratuitously cruel. And all I'm asking you to consider is the time for calling people out isn't everywhere and every time and every opportunity that you get. There are times where where gentle persuasion. I, I still think that pastor, even though he was directly confronting people, did it in a spirit of love. And yet there was a firmness there that he was not. He was not there to make friends and to you know just you know be their buddy and their pal. See, I'm just one of you. But neither was he unnecessarily cruel. I don't know where that fine line is, but I do. I think Annie Holmquist touches on it very well. There are hurt and broken people. They deserve compassion. They deserve support. They need healing.
0: This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian
1: Hyde Show. Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I do want to give a quick shout out about my sponsors here including TMCP nation. That's the modern conservative podcast. My friend, John Harvey, if you go to his website, you check out some of the amazing swag that he has for people who love freedom and are not afraid to show it. Be sure to use the code B hide H Y D E. And they will, uh, they will make it worth your while. And yes, I am an affiliate. So it, it will also uh, help me in terms of uh, little, uh, they'll pay me a small commission, but, uh, John has done remarkable things in spreading the message of liberty, and uh, I think he'll really like some of the things that he has to offer there, TMCPNation.com. Also, Borelli.com, LifesavingFood.com, and College.org. Three quick uh, articles that I want to bring to your attention. One of them is uh, on the idea of how knowing what to think isn't enough to accurately distinguish between truth and error. This is uh, from IntellectualTakeout.org. Alethea hits. Explains how knowing how to think requires understanding and using what she calls the seven intellectual virtues. And these are pretty simple things. They include intellectual courage, she describes what that is, intellectual carefulness, intellectual tenacity, intellectual fair mindedness, also intellectual curiosity, intellectual honesty, and intellectual humility. And she points out how all seven of these virtues are essential to a solid, intellectual life, and if you'll notice, every one of them addresses some aspect of our mental character, calling us to interact wisely and honorably with our world, and she says they're each in things that we can practically apply and benefit from, so these intellectual virtues, when you cultivate them faithfully and apply them well, will help you be a better thinker, better able to sort fact from fiction, and better able to Help other people around you understand when they come to you with questions. Because let's face it, as you increase your own illumination, there will be people coming to you, wanting to know more about why do you know what you know. Very, very well thought out essay. Strongly recommend it for for anybody. All right, there's another great one here from uh, Thomas Buckley. The classics edited for the sensitive reader. This is this is more tongue-in-cheek, but it also draws attention to a real problem that we're facing right now. We talked about this uh, yesterday with, you know, rolled Dahl's classic works like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory undergoing this posthumous sensitivity butchering. And you have to wonder how the censors would handle other prominent works of art from history. So he says, uh, let's see, this, this may be what we could find, you know, in the coming months. And just a few examples... It was the best of times for the 1%. It was the worst of times for the historically oppressed and marginalized workers of France. (laughs) Sorry, but uh, Dickens is going to get this treatment too. How about this one from Kafka? As Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed in his bed into a gigantic potential source of protein, thereby contributing to a meatless future. Or how about this one, when I stepped out into the bright sunlight from the darkness of the movie house, I only had two things on my mind, becoming an anti-racist ally and constantly checking my white privilege. Here's another one, happy families are all alike. Unhappy families are all unhappy in their own way, but both oppress and minimize the suffering of their trans members. Or, it is in no way Shape or form a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Oh, here we go. It was a bright, cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Ha! No need to change that one. Should we try Moby Dick? Call me they! <laughs> I am a sick man. I am a spiteful man. And like all men, I oppress and attack and ignore others at all times. How about Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself, sadly unconcerned that she was extending and supporting a negative gender stereotype. I mean, the possibilities are endless. Now, now the author here also talks about how uh, the entire script of Oedipus Rex could be can, can, could be reduced to this. Oedipus was sad. Oedipus got happy. Oedipus got sad again. How about we uh, expand the sensitivity reader concept to the world of art? A demand has been made for the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel to be replaced with multiple LED boards constantly looping uplifting secular merit messages. Rather, ha! The Mona Lisa could soon have a subtitle plaque. You go, girl boss! The Venus de Milo is expected to be at least contextualized to acknowledge its incipient ableism and body-shaming aspects. Guernica will be shown only to people who have undergone rigorous psychological testing in order to avoid any triggering events. Isn't that the one Picasso painted about the uh, bombings during the Spanish uh, Spanish uh, Civil War? And Van Gogh's sunflowers will now carry a warning about the environmental damage caused by seed oils. Again, this is Thomas Buckley writing this. It's a pretty funny article, but at the same time, it, it drives home a pretty serious point. Nothing is off limits the great classics some of the greatest works produced by the greatest human minds nothing is off limits that's just sad that people can't appreciate them for what they were learn from them and build something better nope it's all about tearing down if we're not tearing down what came before us we're not doing our duty all right here's the final note that i would like to end on and i i have not sat down and watched all 40 some thousand hours of surveillance footage captured by the U.S. Capitol Police security cameras on January 6th of 2021. But isn't it interesting that now that that footage has been made public, Kevin McCarthy handed the footage over to Tucker Carlson. Others have got their hands on it now. Julie Kelly, who is a national treasure, lays out how this is the anatomy of a cover-up. And it's, it's funny, too, because there's... Um, in fact, i got to play this for you. I want to play this warning just because... It's It shows you the the desperation to control this narrative. And, oh, this is very dangerous that, that people might actually, you know, see this and they might draw the wrong conclusion. This is uh, Frank Figluzzi uh, talking about, uh, this is on MSNBC, he's talking about Tucker Carlson getting his hands on this footage. Listen to how they are trying to shape and control the narrative now that this video is out there. And it's poking giant holes in the narrative
3: because there is a security issue here. Um, uh, The the idea that this is not public footage, this is stuff that is has not been released publicly. It's now been given over to uh, to Tucker Carlson, irrespective of what you think about Tucker Carlson's coverage. What's the security risk here, Frank? Yeah. So what we're hearing, and in fact, NBC reported earlier today through Ali Vitali, is that there are legit security issues that could be exposed here. For example, what Ali Vitali cited was a concern that the, the reason we've only seen Nancy Pelosi first uh, removed from the floor and then next see her in a room secured and safe is because we that we were not supposed to see the, the movement from the floor to the room because it would expose the safe room. And the the route that Capitol Police have established to take someone safely away and put them in, in, in a safe place. Those are the kinds of security concerns that could be exposed here if it's handled irresponsibly. And Fox News, Tucker Carlson have a track record of not handling such things in an honest, good faith effort. The other concern, of course, obviously, is the security concerns that arise from false conspiracy theories. We know they are dangerous. We know they lead to violence. And so if, for example, this host on on Fox decides to play only things that indicate uh, or allow him to blow up conspiracy theories, oh, look, that looks like a Fed. Oh, look, it looks like someone instigated this. Oh, look, there's an hour of people doing nothing peacefully. Um, If that keeps going forward and it's ginned up into the notion that all the prosecutions are witch hunts against people who were violent January 6th, that it could really pose a danger
1: and a threat. Oh, my. If you don't believe what we're telling you, why these dangerous conspiracy theories could possibly lead to violence. <laughs> that is, well, it's not the political class itself. These are the spokespeople and the enablers of the political class, and they are scared. I can't say what I want to say next. They're scared to death. They are terrified. People are going to see how many holes there are in that January 6th narrative. Well, they might draw conclusions that somehow uh, they weren't told the whole truth or that uh, somehow the feds were involved in this or that somehow people were mostly peaceful or that the police actually led people into the Capitol. Yeah, because our eyes will tell us exactly what we're seeing from that video. Don't you get tired of being lied to? I know I do. And and as, as Julie Kelly points out, we can only guess at what the videos are ultimately going to reveal. It's possible, even likely, the never-before-seen footage will show the elements of a pre-planned attack engineered by the same political and government forces that tried to destroy Donald Trump for the better part of six years. Will the tapes finally answer the questions that top law enforcement officials like FBI Director Christopher Wray refused to answer and the January 6th Select Committee buried, not the least of which was the role of the FBI? Julie says withholding the video is only one part of the massive cover-up about January 6th. She says Republicans should seek similar demands for records, emails, and communications from Capitol Police to expose the full scope of the cover-up. But, like all good political scandals, the path to the truth begins with the tapes. Thank goodness they're out there and thank goodness we have a chance to learn the truth.
3: This is is The Brian Hyde Show.